Hello, and welcome to the Substack Podcast, where we have conversations with writers who've earned their independence. This week, we have Judd Legum, author and founder of Popular Information. Before this, Judd founded Think Progress, which is a progressive news outlet that reaches tens of millions of readers a month, and now Judd is all in on his own Substack publication. Uh, I found this conversation really fascinating. We got to dive into a lot of what I love to talk about. We talked about how to cover highly polarizing issues without going crazy. Uh, we talked about the difference between running a 40-person newsroom and writing a single author publication. And we talked about how people actually change their minds when it comes to political issues, which, as Judd said so eloquently, it was quietly and without themselves even noticing, which I thought was really insightful. Um, I think you'll really enjoy this interview. So without further ado, here he is, Judd Legum. Judd Legum, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Nathan. Yeah. So I wanted to start uh, by mentioning a quote that you said in your announcement of popular information in Wired Magazine, which is that there's something fundamentally broken about news delivery as a process. And I'm curious, what did you mean by that? Well, I think that the fact that so much of the information is mediated through just a handful of really big tech companies who are very good at making large profits but don't know really anything about news and if you listen to them don't really want to know anything about news they view it mostly as a problem that they want to try to figure their way out of but for people who are really invested in news and information putting those companies in between you and your audience i think is really screwed up in a lot of ways. And I've been looking for opportunities to chart out a new path. Gotcha. And what, like, I'm curious to hear more detail on, like, how the way that news gets distributed now has changed from before, and then in what ways that specifically, like, like you said, they're basically not interested in in news or they don't know much about it, but, like, how, how does it play out, I guess, in society? Well, I've been doing this kind of work for some time now. I remember in 2005 or so when the blogosphere was just starting, growth was much slower, but it was yours. A lot of it was just geared around linking to other people that you thought was doing that you thought were doing good work and you would link to their posts and then maybe a few days later um, they'd link to your post. And it was a very organic process that was focused on on quality and your connection with other people. Uh, now, with Facebook and, and Twitter and a lot of these other companies, it's much more rapid, the growth. You can reach many more people, and it's a huge opportunity, billions of people out there potentially to receive uh, the things that you write and make. But it is less personal, and a lot of the times it is fairly ephemeral, meaning the audience can come and the audience can go. And I think that a lot of decisions that are being made uh, by people in media end up being made with these companies in mind and what might fit within their algorithms and less with the reader in mind or what's important to the publication or their audience. Gotcha. Like, in theory, a lot of what you hear the tech platforms say is, oh, well, we're just kind of tuning the algorithms to reward content that people seem to be engaging with or sharing. And, and they view it as sort of like, well, it's just revealed preference. It just turns out people want this instead of what editors put on the front page of newspapers in history. <laughs> like, what, right. what, what is your – I'm curious if you think they're, they're wrong about that or – I actually think that the process overall started off very positively because it is true that there were just a few companies who kind of had an iron grip uh, on the audience. There used to be a term – Uh, called The Gang of 500. It was popularized by Mark Halperin, who was one of the 
people who's no longer really in media because he was exposed uh, for um, doing a lot of awful things to a number of women who were working working for him. But anyway, what he was referring to was that there was a small group of people who were really determining what people read and what was going to be the dominant topics of the day. So in many respects, the move online and the move to these social networks really democratized uh, that process. Uh, but at the same time, it it now looks like it took the power away, maybe from those 500 people to a, some degree, but it gave it towards a similarly limited group of people at the big tech companies. So we're facing a somewhat similar problem. And and again, I don't think that the answer is to just abandon these platforms, but I think that as consumers and of information and for myself as a, as a writer and a, a reporter and a researcher, I want to diversify the tactics that I'm using so you're not solely reliant on these platforms that you do not own um, to provide you with a a mechanism to get your work out moving forward yeah totally and then from the reader's perspective or just like from from kind of a citizen's perspective like what impact do you think it has on democracy well i think we saw what impact it had on democracy in 2016 that these algorithms are easily manipulated by people, especially if you're not really in it for the long run. I mean, presumably, if you're the New York Times, you don't want to try to exploit an algorithm because next year you're going to want to still be in the good graces of these platforms and, and make sure that you're not penalized in some way. If you are working in a uh, warehouse uh, somewhere in in Russia, just trying to cause trouble and trying to you know suppress votes in cities in um, you know Wisconsin or something like that, then you're probably less concerned of with exploiting a loophole. So I think that there's this myth that the algorithms are neutral, that the algorithms are just revealing people's preferences, but the algorithms are created by humans. Humans are subject to their own biases, and you're really taking shortcuts because you can't actually evaluate all these pieces of content because there's too much. Um, Facebook talks a lot about that in their promotional materials, that there's you know, 2 billion people using it. They're creating you know, X number of pieces of content per day. You really can't look at each one. But when they're having you know, computers or other people, other types of mechanisms to, to look at the content, it's taking a shortcut. And sometimes that works out and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. How did you – were there any moments like over the past several years where – you sort of your views on this really crystallized i think the idea when facebook was talking about came out with that ad campaign about how they're really just about kind of connecting you to your friends and family and all right. this other stuff is just a distraction to me, it signaled that they weren't really serious about solving their issues with misinformation, that the plan was just kind of bury it under a sea of baby pictures and engagement photos and all of that so that most people might not notice it as much. And it just seemed to me at that point there's really no you know, investment in in the work and the people impacted by decisions like that. Like when you say the people impacted by decisions like that, you mean journalists potentially, or just like citizens who need good information? I think both. I think both sides of it. I think a lot of newsrooms um, became highly reliant on, on Facebook uh, to distribute their uh, information and, and, 
to, in their defense, Facebook really encouraged that kind of behavior and, and tried to get people to really um, invest in the platform. And you know, they had instant articles where essentially your, your article itself is hosted on, on Facebook. So they were really looking for that. And then kind of pulling the rug out, um, really beginning in 2017, after the election, a lot of people were, were impacted. I think the sort of first wave were the companies that were just really high, highly leveraged on Facebook, like Upworthy, some low-quality ones like Viral Nova. I remember right. there was one yeah. like that. So, so I don't know if the, you know all of the companies that ended up uh, really taking a severe, um, having taking a severe, uh, suffering severe consequences for this. Were it's really that much of a tragedy? Um, certainly, there's a lot of bad actors out there as well. Uh, but you know, people were were affected. And on the other side. You know, people get there's have people develop habits, and they were coming to expect that this is the place where they would get lots of articles and news, and then you wouldn't find them there anymore. So I think that kind of does them a dis- disservice as well. Totally. Uh, what about yeah. like even going a little further back to like just in general the whole problem of misinformation and fake news, like. How, how did you, you – you're kind of in the middle of, of the news media, you, you know, running Think Progress, this progressive you know, news organization. Like how did, how did that – how did you experience that kind of whole arc where you, you were around before it was really an issue and then now we're obviously in the thick of it, perhaps peak of the of – the Yeah, you know, it's, it's actually not super new. Um, it's been around for a long time certainly. Um, for many years, the Drudge Report uh, played an outsized role on the internet. Uh, I remember uh, in 2012, probably, looking at and kind of making one of my writers do a big research project where we looked at the Drudge Report and saw how many times they linked to Alex Jones and Infowars because Drudge was really promoting. Um, that as a as a site and as a legitimate source of information, and all of the top Republican presidential candidates, Republican administrations, they were all have you needed to have like a Drudge person, like that was a huge source, of, and I think that that began to sow the seeds of. You know what we see now in the Trump era, where there's just a whole ecosystem of misinformation that people are kind of ready to accept. I don't think that um, it wasn't that Trump just sort of emerged and was able to say a lot of things that weren't true, and everyone just believed him. I think people over many years were were conditioned to accept this kind of information. And he then kind of stepped in and understood how to t- take advantage of that. Right, right, definitely. And what would you say? I'm sure there's some people who maybe aren't fans of Trump but consider themselves kind of conservative, and they'd be like, mm-hmm. "Well, you're right. You know, obviously stuff like you know PizzaGate or something like that—that's just ridiculous. Infowars. I'm not into that. But there's a lot of trouble on the left too, and they would kind of equivocate um, and say that there's bad actors on both sides. Like, do you buy that? There definitely is, and one of the things that um, I, I love to do it when I was at Think Progress, and I'll, I'll try to continue to do it with the newsletter too, is to call people out. Um, I think that there's a whole group of kind of charlatans on Twitter that say they know what's happening with the Mueller investigation, and you know, uh, Rudy Giuliani is getting the death penalty soon. It's all sealed in the federal courthouse, and you know they're taking advantage of people on the left who who want to believe that that's true. Um, we wrote an extensive uh, story about the Krasenstein brothers. I think that's how you pronounce it. But there's two brothers uh, who previously were involved in these high yield investment schemes. Um, they say they were just sort of operating a forum where people could discuss such s- schemes um, and 
their house was raided, but ultimately they wouldn't charge. I'm speaking very carefully because I don't want to uh, create any any unnecessary litigation. But anyway, you could go look at the article, and you can see that um, you know they had some shade. They have sort of a shady history, and now they're online and they have hundreds of thousands of followers, and it's a big anti-Trump message. So I think it it, it definitely is not a partisan issue one way or the other in that it exists on the left or it it doesn't exist on the left and exists on the right the difference is on the right you now have the president of the united states using his official position it's not just a couple of dudes on twitter you know racking up twitter followers it's the president of the united states using it to manipulate people to set policy and so there's a there's a fundamentally different impact to what's going on, even though it's happening on both sides. Yeah. And have you I'm curious, like, because Pizzagate was a lot of it was about Podesta, who you work really closely with the founder of Center of American Progress. And it was mm-hmm. just a ridiculous story. And that was something that you were pretty close to. I'm curious, like the impact of what something like that must have felt like. Well, I. I thought it was really disgusting and knowing, you know, knowing John and this sort of caricature they made him out to be and and people can agree or disagree with his politics, but he was not running a child pedophilia ring out of a basement of a pizza shop that doesn't even have a basement. So the idea that, you know, he would be kind of dragged through the mud like that for no reason, I think was upsetting to me personally and still on twitter you know when he tweets he'll tweet about something you know he he's always been a big environmentalist so he was obviously upset with pruitt and you know he writes articles for i think the washington post now so he would tweet you know his op-ed on pruitt and there'd be a bunch of people with pizzagate stuff in his comments like even to this day every time and it really is kind of the worst of of the internet and I don't know I don't know exactly how you how you stop it or if you can stop it and maybe the best way to deal with it is to ignore it but that doesn't seem to work either so anyway I'm, I'm still kind of thinking through how you approach that problem and I don't know if I have a great answer well I mean definitely popular information seems to be it's 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 part of an answer, at least, for sure, to some of these problems. I'm curious kind of how you came up with the idea of popular information. Were you thinking of doing something like this in in the middle of... It, se- it seems like this is sort of your response to all these issues we've been talking about. Yeah. Well, I've written two, two emails so far, so I don't know if it's fully formed as far as what it will become. But it's been interesting just going through the process for even a couple of days because as an email that goes out in the morning and I always wanted it to go out in the morning because I thought that I think that's when people are really wanting to know kind of open to to different ideas and what they should be thinking about what they might be thinking about and you you have to you can't just hop on whatever is breaking news or whatever is happening at that moment because it only comes out once a day so you have to think about something with a little more staying power that has a larger import to someone's lives, at least in my view. And I think it's it's interesting and exciting to have the space to think about those kind of things. Um, and it's a contrast to running a website where we were you know, publishing 25 or 30 things a day, which is actually pretty light output for a website you know there's websites that are posting a thousand articles a day or 500 articles a day and it's just an entirely different mentality and i think that there's a lot of value in it how is it i mean it's only been two editions so far but i'm curious like the relationship with your audience do you feel a change now from either think progress or or from twitter which a lot of people i think you know that that's one of the main ways they know you and know your work yeah, I I have had a lot of people emailing me. Um, 
people emailing me some suggestions, you know, things like this isn't formatting right, or, uh, you know, it's a little too long, or it's a little too short. And I appreciate all of it because I think I, I just appreciate that people care enough to to write me and, and give me those kind of thoughts. Um, but overall, it's been really positive. I think I've gotten a lot of encouragement to kind of keep at it. Um, and that feels um, that feels good. I think people understand. I don't think I'm alone in the idea that it might be time for just new approaches not that we need to throw out everything that's out there, but just it could be time to just try some new things. And I think I've gotten a good a good response um, because of that. So it is a little more intimate, I think, when people email you. I certainly on Twitter, the, the number of people who respond to tweets and things like that, I, I really stopped looking at those for the most part, like sometimes one will just sort of like fly across the screen and it'll catch my eye. But I've stopped looking at those for the most part a long time ago. You know, I don't have any notifications or anything like that because it's just that would be all you would do. Yeah. And so it it is it is interesting kind of starting from the ground with this newsletter and, you know, really being able to engage on a one to one basis. And I and also I feel like there's a purpose to it because I really want to connect with the people at the other end. You know, I'm devoting all my time to creating this newsletter and sending it out four times a week. So if somebody writes me, I'm like really glad to hear from them and I want to respond and respond in a thoughtful way. And I just, on Twitter, you know, it's just, I don't know. You haven't made any investment in each other. So right. there it's, it's less there. It's less, obvious to me why I'm um, spending time doing that. Uh, I think that also we'll see, but I, I don't, I haven't gotten a lot of replies from people who are tr- just wanting to troll me uh, on email, and I think that generally people don't sign up to an email to just troll the author. Yeah, um, And so... That's been interesting. I, I'm probably jinxing it. I'm sure that will come uh, in time, but I haven't gotten so many of that. People who even, you know, there's been people who've emailed me who've liked it. There's people who've emailed me who have issues, you know, the issues with different things that I'm doing, but I feel like everyone is coming from like a pretty good place where they, they want to try to like it. And so if they don't like it, it's more like, help me like this rather than your an evil bastard and why are you doing this to our country which is you know which is which is some of what you get um which is some of what you get on twitter yeah it seems like there's just less satisfaction in calling someone that in a private space where only they can see (laughs) then i don't fully understand the motivation but yeah yeah i think that's a big i think that's a big part of it I, i hadn't thought about that but i think that's a big part of it it's like only you get the email whereas twitter is like a little more performative in that way right and that other people might see it you know there's other people commenting on a tweet and so they might see what you're saying things like that right and there's no chance that other like people could like your email because it's also not public and so maybe people do it because they want to get somebody like ratioed or whatever where it's like oh this was a bad tweet you know and just kind of shame that person or whatever anyway it's it's kind of crazy i mean this leads into another conversation i wanted to have with you which is just about polarization. Um, Mm -hmm. The country, I mean, just lots of data and studies that I I don't have at hand, but it's the narrative is that things are getting worse, that people are getting more um, invested in their own ideologies or systems of belief or whatever you want to call it. And, and you can't sort of step out of that and just think about, okay, like there's some basic good for everyone that we can have practical disagreements over, but, uh, we're all essentially at some level, at least going for the same goal. Um, I'm, I'm curious how you think about that. I am somewhat skeptical of the hand wringing about polarization, because I think that there are assumptions that's built into the idea that that's a problem, meaning that for polarization to be a problem, it would mean 
there's an underlying assumption that the solution to whatever's going on is someplace in the middle. I mean, we need to be less polarized and kind of meet in the middle. And maybe we do. Uh, I, you know, I don't know. Uh, but I think it's also possible that we're polarized, but really the answers lie outside of either pole. And, and the answer is not that we should come together, but it's just we should be even more willing to take on controversial ideas and hash things out with people. Um, and so, yeah, I think that in some respect, um, I understand what the issues are, like with polarization, and I do think that there's a certain amount of just disrespect that people have that that I do take seriously you know I'm not really like a flamethrower in that sense where I'm gonna call a lot of people names and things like that I never really like that um so I think that's something that maybe people can come around but as far as we we all need to moderate our positions because that's the way in which we're going to move forward. I'm more skeptical because I don't know that that's where the answers to the real problems lie. And there's a certain amount of privilege in that perspective in that you're probably fairly comfortable with the status quo if you if you're if you're able to be concerned about that kind of thing like with the civil rights movement like the that created a lot of conflict and there was a lot of polarization but the answer wasn't necessarily to kind of just sort of meet where everyone could sort of be okay you had to like confront um a certain kind of ideology and just say that that is unacceptable and we need to go a different way and it you couldn't really embrace all of it you had to right. you had to have that conflict um so you know it's easy to say in retrospect now we've kind of like come to some sort of like well, semi-consensus you know we now have the rise of white nationalism and stuff like that but for the most part like we you know it's easy to say in retrospect like what made sense but that i think that's just like the way that i think about it yeah well, and I think there's two kind of interesting models that a lot of people have in their head about what is the central point of conflict with politics. And one is the mistake model where people think it's just really hard and you have to have really smart people and good data and like a good process to be able to try experiments and stuff. And if only we could be maybe a little more scientific about it, then we could like fix our mistakes. But the primary reason people suffer because of government ineptitude or whatever is like it's just that it's ineptitude and then there's this other model that's like conflict and it's like actually the solutions are really simple and it's um the interests of the small people that have all the power and kind of control all the money and the resources versus the interest of everyone else and it's like you know um we what was the thing from alexandra cortez it was uh they have the money we have the people and i, I think that's kind of the central um argument there i'm curious if one of those feels more right or more intuitive to you um, I, I, after arguing against sort of, uh, meeting in the middle, I think there's some of both in that. I think that, I do think that corporations and wealthy people, um, and other powerful people have way too much control over government policy. Uh, we just reduced the corporate tax rate from 35% to 21% at a time when corporate profits were at an all-time high, and now that money is being used to buy back shares and artificially inflate, in, inflate share prices to benefit some investors and, and very few other people. So I think that's a big problem. Once you might be able to break through that and... Um, have people who maybe are a bit more expansive in the interests that they represent um, be in control of government, you would still need it's still hard. So you then still need to like do smart things. Right. It's not like if you're just if your heart's in the right place, you're going to end up um, with good policy or, or helping people. 
you can be trying to help people and really screw them over. Like it's happened all the time. So, so I, so I kind of agree with both models and think that, um, you know, you kind of need some of, some of both. Yeah, totally. And would you say with popular information that you focus more on one or the other? Like, do you think that right now, like 2018, there's, there's a, there's a way that feels like the, the best place to make progress? Well, I've never been afraid of a fight yeah. um, <laughs> as far as the way that I approach things. So I like to, and I think also like that's what, that's the kind of, of writing that people find interesting, like any story, you know, politics is a story and it's a narrative and, and every story needs heroes and villains and, and a narrative arc. And so as you see that happening in the world, kind of presenting it in that way, I think make, makes thing, can make things more, um, more compelling. Uh, but I, I also am, am really interested in, in research and data and policy and, and facts and like in today's newsletter um i had written about polls uh in the first newsletter it was it was my kind of big item and i got a lot of response from that and somebody uh who was a professor at syracuse sent me i was writing about horse race polling and she sent me pretty much every academic article i don't know i don't know if it was every academic article but she might have sent me eight or nine academic articles on horse race polling that were all interesting in their own way and so i included some of that as sort of a follow-up um in in today's newsletter and and that felt good like that felt like the right thing to do because it's it's showing that it's it's not just a static thing it's alive people are looking at it reacting to it and adding to it um so I want to. I think I want to do both things. I think I want to take on um, sort of things that I think are screwed up in the world and really explain them and expose them in an unsparing way. But I also want to help people understand the world through the best kinds of information that we can find. So I think there'll be like a little bit of both. Yeah. Is there any... Do you think, like, ideological difference in your writing now for popular information than the um, kind of principles that guided Think Progress? I'm sure there's tons of overlap, but I'm curious if it's, like, evolved any or now that you're more independent and you don't kind of – you don't have to have a team or, you know. I wonder if there's any difference. I think I'm finding that I have more space to kind of bring my own views into it. Um, and not really have to worry about, you know, how it might reflect on the publication overall. Um, like, it would have been difficult to write that first piece I did on polling because what if somebody wrote a piece about a poll like that same day or something like that? Like, it would be a little weird, especially since I was, you know, the editor-in-chief. So it's like, well, if you really feel that way, Judd, then why are you just published this? And I never wanted to have so much control over what everyone's writing that I would have told people, like, stop writing about X or yeah. Y. Although, By the although way, we've mentioned... We never, oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, we've mentioned the polling piece a couple times. We should just say, in case people haven't read it, uh, it's a really interesting article. Um, I, I loved it. I'm curious, just like the the basic idea, like for, to get a quick explanation for people, and also maybe some of what the response was from that. Yeah, basically the idea was that people pay too much attention to these horse race polls that say who's winning and who's losing. Um, a lot of the information that you heard in the lead up to the 2016 election, Hillary Clinton has a 83% chance of becoming president or. You know, even in the primaries, this idea that Trump had a ceiling at X percent, Y percent, uh, that there's really nothing you can do with the information. It's mostly a waste of time and that instead you should focus on talking to people or, or learning about issues that are important to you because those are the things that can really motivate people um, to be engaged and maybe get someone who wouldn't otherwise vote to vote um, and, and things like that. So that was the kind of thrust of the piece. Uh, I think there was a, a pretty good and varied response. I definitely got a lot of people who 
were saying they 100% agreed with me and they understood that this was a problem, including some of the pollsters that I talked to for the uh, for the piece itself, um, because I think they recognize a problem in the media's use of polling. Uh, but then there were people, you know, Nate Silver from 538, who uh, really does very rigorous and impressive analysis of horse race polling. He he kind of positioned it as, well, it's better than what we used to do, which was you, just, you had a bunch of talking heads sit around the table and say, oh, I think Joe Biden's going to win, or I think Elizabeth Warren's going to win, and here's why. And I agree with that. I think what he's doing is, is more rigorous and probably more interesting than that because it's based on more than just some usually old dude's uh, intuition. Right. Uh, but I still think that there are other alternatives to how you can spend your time um, politically. And I think the reason why a lot of people are disengaged is if it all does sort of seem like a game – where all of the powerful people are in charge and all you ever hear about is like who's up and who's down. I think that people have a lot of stuff going on and it might not be that interesting to everyone. Yeah. Uh, I think people really want to hear about how it can have impact their lives or the lives of the people in their neighborhood. Um, things like healthcare, obviously like immigration. You know, I think that's, I think Donald Trump did a good job having some substantive, um, issues associated with this campaign they may have been completely backwards they may have been bigoted but i think people knew that or at least they knew that they were told that if they voted for trump they would be getting a wall and mexico would pay for it now uh that didn't end up being true uh at least for right now but there i think that is i think a lot of if you were to ask trump voters as they were showing up to the polls i think you know quite a few of them probably would have told you about the wall and how they wanted it and they wanted Mexico to pay for it. And I think it's instructive. Yeah. Like the kind of conclusion of the polls argument is instead of paying attention to the horse race, you should actually talk about the issues with people. And I'm curious, like it's, it feels so hard to have a conversation with someone about these things without it devolving into you accusing them of a bad person. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like how do you actually convince, I think everyone is kind of, Everyone has kind of agreed. It's sort of like World War One, where there's a trench and you're dug in and no one really wants to cross and no one can cross. Like That's how it sort of feels. And, and you've sort of making the argument that people actually do change their minds, that things do change. How, but to have a conversation with someone who fundamentally disagrees with you on issue, it feels really hard. Like, What advice would you have for people who want to do that? I, I would say don't have a conversation with someone trying to change their mind or trying to change anything about their behavior. I think you can just have a conversation with someone of like, hey, I read this and it was interesting. Uh, or had you heard about this and tell them a little bit about it? Like, I don't think you need to then go and say, what are your views on this? And if they disagree with you, tell them why they're wrong. Like, I, I don't think you need to do that. I, I don't think that most people change their minds that way. I think people change their minds kind of quietly and without even themselves noticing, really. I don't think many people are like, I've been wrong all of this time. I've now seen the light. It's more just like over time they evolve. You know, in, in 2008, uh, all the de none of the Democratic candidates, none of the major Democratic candidates supported same-sex marriage. That wasn't seen as, as a mainstream position. Now it would be un, it would be inconceivable. I doubt even the. De in fact, it's in 2018 going into 2020. I think the position is it's so inconceivable that you would have a Democratic candidate who would oppose same-sex marriage that I doubt the question will even be asked. It will just be assumed. Yeah. That they all support it because it was like if you don't like what are you doing like that would be insane to to run for president of the Democratic Party and not support that. And it just shows you how quickly um, things could change. And there was a Supreme Court decision, obviously, that that changed a lot of things about uh, the reality of the ground. But the, the opinions and the and the politics really predated that. It changed before that. And and I think it just goes to show you what's what is possible and how views and attitudes do change over time. 
if it and, wasn't and not that oh, long time. Yeah, if it wasn't yep. people like go, you know, talking to someone, trying to convince someone who disagrees, then how did the change actually happen? Like specifically in the case of support for gay marriage, because I think it's an interesting question. I think it's that I think it it, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about before. I think it's the fact that people knew as as people became just more comfortable on a social level letting other people know that they were a same-sex couple people just got exposed to them in their communities in non-political settings at their work at the barbecue whatever and i think they came to understand that hey these are people that i know and like these are this isn't some threat to my um lifestyle or america or whatever right and and i think it they they were able to connect to it um in a very personal way i think if you talk to if you hear a lot of people talk about how they change their views most people it wasn't like oh i read the literature about x y and z it was that like oh you know i just i had some very close friends or you know i met this person um, or maybe a son or a daughter, something like that. Um, so I think, so I think it's about making those kind of personal connections. So I think if you can talk to somebody about, you might want to talk to somebody about. Well, it, you know, it depends on what you're comfortable with. But you might want to talk to somebody about like some health problem that you've had and your experiences with the healthcare system as it exists. And you don't have to convince anyone of that by just talking to people. Um, and letting them know about what's going on, I think is um, has a lot of impact, whether you know it, whether you know it or not. It's those kinds of conversations that really stick with people. Um, and and I don't think it's all, always in a good way. I think I think there's a lot of these kinds of conversations that are happening quietly that are leading people to all sorts of, in my view, horrible ideas about the world and people. But right. You, it's like, oh, I met a Nazi and he it. was a nice guy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's absolutely I think that's absolutely right. But um, I do think it's important. And, and I and I do worry sometimes that especially especially the, the left uh, progressives are a bit kind of intellectual and reserved about it. Whereas I think the, the right are a little bit less so. Yeah. What do you think about the kind of, I, I think there's two, two modes of thought on the left about how to approach um, maybe the more traditional conservative part of society where you say, on the one hand, you, you want to have empathy, you want to understand these people, maybe you want to convince them of something. On the other hand, it's like, I've got no tears for your, like, quote-unquote, suffering when what we've been going through is, like, so much worse. And um, I'm curious how you feel about the kind of tendency on the left or the right, I guess, to kind of um, shame the other side a little bit or to, or to not want to empathize. To me, it's all about power. I think of the handful of people on the right with real power who are really either determining what's happening or have the power to stop it and aren't. For those people, I do feel no sympathy, but that's that's really more of a handful of people. I, I think most people, um, I think most people mean well. Uh, I think is my personal view, certainly. There are some bad people out there, but I don't think that's I think that's more of the exception than the rule. And, you know, even if you look at something like the NRA membership and there's, you know, people ask NRA members about common sense gun regulations, they usually support them. Background checks, other things like that. It's it's the head of the organization itself and the the power structure that's that's radicalizing the group. And. I think I think that's that's mostly mostly the case. You know, you've got 40% or so of the country supporting Trump. 
I don't think they all were really angry with CNN before Trump told them to be super angry with CNN. I think they've been convinced of that over time because of the person in power. Um, so, yeah. What role do you want popular information to have? Like, ideally, if things work out really well in kind of the ecosystem of ideas. I'd like it to be a place where people can go and feel like they trust that the information in there will be things that are genuinely important and that is genuinely genuinely worthy of their time and that they can read it and, and learn something new. Um, and that hopefully it can be in my view, somewhat of a refuge from the chaos of the social media world and the cable news world where things are organized, it's hopefully presented in a thoughtful way and that they're able to get things that don't just go in one side of their brain and out the other side of their brain that they might think about for you know a little while yeah and is there anything about like the structure that you set up before it's like it's email so you know there's not any algorithms and it's directly supported by readers that you think makes it easier for you to do that because i'm assuming there's you know people with good intentions that work in the kind of traditional ad supported system whether it be like cable news or you know newspapers on or you know online that kind of stuff um, yeah, I don't, I, I don't think I'm, I'm not going to have any other things pulling me other than trying to create a product that the readers of the newsletter like, you know, and I do think that there is an issue if, let's say you're writing a, a newspaper, a, a newsletter, uh, like these Politico newsletters or other newsletters are out there and you're totally walled off from the ad side. You're not selling any ads. You're not talking to any advertisers. But you notice that for a month, uh, the sponsor is J.P. Morgan. Well, what if there was a decision of there's this big story on J.P. Morgan and I want to spend a lot of time on the newsletter with it? Even subconsciously, I think it might impact your decision because there's a million things to write about every day. So no one's going to notice or care if you write about J.P. Morgan or not, but you might decide not to. Um, And I think that by not having ads... Uh, by not having really anything pulling me in one direction or the other except the readers, I do think that there's a purity and an honesty about it, which is why I'm really hopeful that it works because it seems like almost too good to be true. Like if it were to work, it would be so amazing. And that's why I'm working really hard at it because I feel like if I could get this to work, I'm just going to do it forever and be really happy with it because that's really exactly like what I've always wanted to do. Um, and to a large extent, you know, I got to do that at Think Progress, but I still had to do it in the context of running a whole organization and managing people and all the, you know, logistics and things like that. Whereas here, there's there's not a lot of logistics. Uh, thanks to the kind people at, at Substack, uh, yeah. who've, who've set up this, who've set up this platform. It's not, there's not a lot of logistics. It's mostly just kind of write and send. And it's just, it would just be, um, ideal. And, and I, and I sort of feel like, um, it's the, the time is now for it that people are open to the idea of, well, maybe I do need to, um, and actually, popular information now is free. I'm, I assume it'll probably be free when you're listening to this, unless it's sometime after September 2018. Um, but um, I'm sorry, you just like froze. Oh yeah, sorry. Okay, I, yeah, sorry. No, I froze. Okay. When when did you cut off? Hopefully, we can edit in a smooth, edit it in gracefully. <laughs> okay, I think I was cutting off. I was saying. Um, I was saying I think that people are open. Uh, I think I think the timing is good that people are open to new things and that they might think to themselves, maybe I maybe I should pay for 
a newsletter that I really like and that is a really important part of my day four days a week uh, whereas in the past maybe they wouldn't understand why they might want to do that but I think people are open to the ideas that the existing media ecosystem has some weaknesses that they might need to fill in yeah and I think people also once you once you learn um, to kind of once you once you form a relationship with a writer that you really trust to basically do a service for you, which is to spend a lot of time learning and reading and looking for stuff in the world and then filtering through all of it and making sense of it and picking the things that are important. Like that's a really that's like a trusted relationship. And um, I think it's if you actually can form that with someone, that's definitely worth the like seven or 10 or whatever dollars a month that it ends up that you end up paying for it because um, it's your lens to like a whole section of the world. Um, and um, well, I, I, I'm excited. I'm, <laughs> I'm excited to be partnering <laughs> with you on this um, and it'll be, it'll be fun. This is the very beginning of uh, your journey on it, but we're really honored that you're working with us and um, also honored that you're on this podcast. So thanks for, thanks for doing it. Well, thanks so much for happy, uh, having me, and I'm I'm really uh, enthused to have such uh, such great partners, and hopefully I can come back in uh, a few months or whenever, and we can talk about what a runaway success this whole project is. Yeah, let's hope. <laughs> um, so, if people are interested in popular information, where should they sign up? They should go to popular.info. Uh, and you can sign up there with a nice splash page uh, designed by the host of this podcast. <laughs> it's true. That's also the, the podcast host thing is just my uh, side gig here at Substack. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Awesome. Well, Judd Legum, it's been an honor. Thank you. Thank you.